This is episode number 29 with Chief Data Scientist Ben Taylor. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I hope you're having an amazing day. And today we've got an incredible guest. Today we've got one of the most inspiring thought leaders in the space of data science, Ben Taylor. Now, Ben is a speaker, so you might have seen or heard him at a conference. And also, Ben is an author of multiple very insightful, very profound, and even sometimes philosophical articles on the topic of data science on LinkedIn. So what you need to know about Ben is that he started off as a chemical engineer, uh, and uh, he's done a lot of great work in that space. He even has a patent in uh, nano nanophysics. Then he moved on to being a quant in a trading firm where he applied data science methods and uh, worked with GPUs, Hadoop, and so on for the purposes of um, trading financial uh, securities. And then he moved on with his career. Now he is redefining recruiting via artificial intelligence. And the things that he's doing there are just incredible. You'll hear from the podcast how they use uh, video recognition to assess a candidate's performance during an interview and really speed up the recruiting uh, process for so many firms. It's incredible how machine learning algorithms can be used to redefine even something like recruiting. In this podcast, you will learn lots of valuable insights. Ben will give us a crash course into deep learning and give you an intuitive understanding of deep learning and why it is superior to other types of machine learning algorithms. Uh, ben will also give you some tips on how to become an A-class data scientist and what you can do to improve your career and much, much more. Does that sound exciting? I bet you can't wait to get started. So without further ado, I bring to you Ben Taylor, Chief Data Scientist of HireVue. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I've got a super special guest. Uh, I've got Ben Taylor here on the line from Utah. Ben, I've been a big fan of Ben's for a very long time, and finally I've got him onto the podcast. Hi, Ben. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I, I'm super excited about this opportunity. It's like I've been following your posts on uh, LinkedIn and just your career for uh, over a year now, and you know you were a very huge, a very big inspiration for me. And so, if um, people don't know, haven't heard of Ben, Ben is a uh, huge thought leader in the space of data science. He's got some great articles. You may have read his uh, data scientist type E article. Very, very interesting. Very inspiring. And uh, today, probably we'll get started off. Uh, well, actually, just before the call, we were talking about Ben's background. I, we, I, as I told Ben, I wish I had recorded all of that uh, during our intro because that was the first time we met. But if you don't mind, Ben, could you please walk us through a bit of your background again? How did you get started into data science and how did you end up uh, in the position you're in now? Yeah, um, so my, I think for most people who have been professional data scientists for the last five years and longer, they had no formal programs before. 
And so a lot of their backgrounds are very mixed. They come from physics, biostats, chemical engineering, anywhere really. It doesn't matter what their background is. And for me, it was chemical engineering. So I studied chemical engineering um, because it was a good technical route that could still allow me to go into medical school if I wanted to uh, become a doctor. And so for people that don't know what chemical engineers do, they their typical jobs might be something like designing a, a chemical process for a petroleum refinery or um, a lot of these semiconductor plants like NVIDIA and Intel and Micron, they, they hire chemical engineers as well because it's a chemical process. Um, so I, I did that for my undergrad, and I was really lucky because during my undergrad, um, I had my first real exposure to some serious um, machine learning programming. It was a numerical methods class, and it was it was an introduction introduction class. But our teacher exposed us to kind of the base introductions that you would expect. But we also learned things like simulated annealing and genetic algorithms that I would not expect to learn and an entry-level class like that. So that teacher did me a huge favor to kind of inspire me on this concept of your computer's working for you while you're away or while you're sleeping. So I just love the idea that my computer at home or my cluster at home could be doing significant work 24-7. And so for all of my engineering projects, I always brought in a machine learning component or machine vision component, even if it was a huge stretch. And a lot of times it was. And in some cases, it even frustrated my chemical engineering professors because they saw the stuff I was doing as being kind of too far away from the core discipline. One example of that is I went and did a, for, we all did internships our junior year, I think. That's the year before you graduate. And a lot of the other students went and did distillation columns and worked for chemical processing plants. And I went and worked for the Desert Research Institute doing satellite image processing where we'd pull in satellite data and we'd predict algae content in the ocean by combining multiple satellite image sets. And it involved a lot of programming and image processing where they felt like that had absolutely nothing to do with chemical engineering. But I, I enjoyed that. And I went and for my master's, I came, I moved from Reno, Nevada to Utah. And I studied, I was studying gold nanoparticle arrays. And for people that aren't familiar with those, they're exciting because they can be used for single antigen detection. So if there's a single virus or a single cancer cell, right now with today's methods, you can't detect it. It needs to be significant. Uh, but with these gold nanoparticle arrays, they're so sensitive, they can literally respond to a single antigen. So a single virus could be detected or a single cancer cell. And for all of my master's work, it, I since I had a strong programming background, I ended up doing all the machine segmentation, image processing on these SEM images, scanning electron microscopy images from those gold nanoparticle arrays. And then I went and got my first real job working for Intel and Micron um, in their, it's their main NAND flash producing plant. So for the Intel SSDs, all of their NAND flash memory comes from this plant that I worked at. So I worked there for five years doing process control and yield prediction and still chemical engineering things, but kind of had a statistical side to it. But the the big breakthrough for me that I am grateful for, but I'll never do again, um, I had an opportunity to go and work for a hedge fund as a, a quant. And a quant is slang for a quantitative analyst. And the interesting thing about quants is quants really are data scientists and they've existed 
long before data science was a thing. So quants have been around for the last 20 or 30 years. And what a quant does is they can program really well, and they also understand ridiculous amounts of math because they do algorithmic trading. So they write programs that trade stock automatically, and the majority of all stock trades now are automated. So this hedge fund, it was focused on trading on the news, so using sentiment. So all of the news, articles, blogs, anything that could affect price um, for the, the top 1,500 stocks in the U.S., they were analyzed in real time, and stock decisions were made at this hedge fund. Uh, the interesting thing about the hedge fund, we built a 600 GPU cluster in-house, and that was four years ago. And even today, that would be very ambitious, and four years ago, that was ridiculous. But we, we did it. We succeeded. We built it, and it would do over 10 million um, five-year back tests per day. It allows, allowed us to do a lot of optimization. And then I went back. Um, so if, if you could see my face or if you've seen a recent photo of me, I'm, I'm getting some gray in my chin. <laughs> and the joke is all of that came from the hedge fund. Uh, like I, I think it literally did. Like Within a few months, my, my wife noticed that, man, you're – you're getting a lot of gray quickly. And, and the reason that was that working in a hedge fund, if you've talked to people that have or if you have yourself, it's it can be very stressful and it can there's a lot of money to be made. A lot the people you work with are extremely talented, very smart people, in some cases abrasive. And when I would go into work, I would feel I would feel like I was going into a fight sometimes where you, you kind of have that heightened sense of um it's hard to explain. Just the feeling you get before you have a confrontation. Imagine having that first thing when you come into work and it lasting all day, and then just that's your life. That's that's how you work, and that, that's not really a work environment that I could. I, I learned a lot, but after a year, I went back to Intel and Micron, and then after a year, I realized I wasn't happy there because I wasn't feeling challenged. And there was a startup called HireView. They're backed by Sequoia Capital. Um, they had. They were looking to bring on machine learning, and so I joined them um, three years ago, and I helped build out their data science team, their IP, and their machine learning component. Real quick, what HireView does is they do digital interviewing. So we're all familiar. Everyone listening has had to interview. We've had to get a job. Uh, so we've gone. A tr traditional job will be you submit a resume, someone calls you back, and maybe you do an on-site interview or a phone screen interview, then that leads to an on-site and then you get a job where with HireView, they do interviewing right on your, your iPhone or your laptop. So you can go straight to interviews. So for HireView, for all of our data science openings that we have, anyone can go straight to interview where they do the full coding assessment, they do the interview, and then um, we've had candidates come through that process where I would feel comfortable giving them a job just from that. Typically, we will do a live interview after that, but I... The, the interview process saves employers a lot of time. And half of our customers, or half of the Fortune 100 companies use us. So that's Chase, Goldman Sachs, Unilever, Red Bull, like a lot of huge, IBM, a lot of huge people use us to do their hiring. Oh, and then the other thing I'm doing right now, I'm also the chief data officer for a new startup called um, Ziff, and it's a deep learning startup. So I'm doing both of them simultaneously. That's that's really cool. And uh, uh, yeah, it's very interesting what uh, you mentioned about the hiring process. Could you uh, give us a bit more detail about 
Um, what, what we talked about earlier, the, the way you use uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence in the hiring process, I thought that was just fantastic oh, yeah. and phenomenal. Yeah. So one of the things I like about HR, everyone can relate to it, but it's also extremely personal. Mm-hmm. So if you're building models to predict yield on a wafer or which marketing lead to follow up with or something like that, it's not really impacting anyone's life in a big way. But if you're writing algorithms that predict if you should get a job or not, that's it's it's a personal thing and it can it can have a good influence on people, it can also have a negative influence. And so when I first joined, I saw a lot of value in all of these digital video recordings that were saved in the cloud. And what we ended up doing is we we enabled machine learning on the video interview itself. And so from a 20-minute interview, we predict whether or not you should get the job. And what that allows is it allows for companies with really high volume who interview in the thousands, tens of thousands, or even we have some companies that interview hundreds of thousands of interviews a year. They now have an ability to bring the top talent up to the top of the queue and react to them very quickly. And in some cases, advance them on through the hiring process, or we think we're starting to see opportunities now where they could be hired just using the machine learning from the video. Um, And the features that we use, we use voice to text. So everything, so using deep learning, we transcribe the interview and we get all the content. And so all of your language can be used um, to make a decision. And then we also use micro expressions. So there's an old show called Lie to Me, Paul Ekman. That that person is actually a real person. We got to meet, see him in San Francisco. Mm. He's an expert on facial micro expressions and deciding what they mean. So the computer will actually measure micro expressions during the video. Um, so that can pick up on a lot of the soft competencies that are missing on a resume or even on a phone screen. Um, and all of that is brought together in a holistic model and it makes a prediction. Yeah, and and you said yeah. you can do a much better job than a human can. Uh, yeah, so the the fun thing about that point is I've, I've, gone, I've gone around and I've gone to different conferences to speak on this topic and look, show results and talk about case studies and stuff. And initially, there's a lot of disbelief because I, I don't know whether if the technology needed seems it, like it would be intimidating or, or something that we're not ready for in 2017. Or I, I don't know why people kind of hesitate that this is a possibility, because I, I think it seems pretty obvious that, of course, this would work and it would work well. But the, the point I like to make is humans set the bar so low <laughs> when it comes to hiring and recruiting that it was actually trivial for the computer to step over it. And for people who aren't familiar with recruiting, if you think about it, there is a huge luck component for everyone that if you want to get a job at Google, if you want to get a job somewhere else, depending on the, you know, their process for bringing people on board, there's a luck component where if you talk to this recruiter versus that recruiter, you may or may not get through. The other thing, issues that humans have is there's a similarity bias. I'm more likely to hire someone more similar to myself than I am to hire someone who's a polar opposite. And then the biggest fault of humans is we can't compete with a computer. And this is true in general. It's not just hiring. So machine learning versus the, the human. The human, in a lot of cases, has a very difficult time competing with just observation count. So mm-hmm. a human might experience five hires, 10 hires, 100 hires in their lifetime. But a computer can comprehend 100,000. 
And then the other jab against the human mindset would be even if they were looking at the exact same data set, they both have access to 100 hires, the human will overweight and underweight experiences unfairly. So if you, and the example of that would be a community college. So let's say, or I'm interviewing a data scientist or an engineer. They go to this particular community college, they come and interview, and they are a complete train wreck. Not only are they a train wreck, they're, train wreck, they're dishonest. They're the worst interview I've seen all year. <laughs> so I will take that information, and the next time I get someone coming from that community college, I already have a bias against them. And they may not even get an interview now where when we talk about it, we realize that that is, that is totally unfair. But humans do that all the time, and they do it on the flip side where there's an Ivy League bias. So if you went to Stanford or Harvard, you may get an unfair um, Ivy League bias that would suggest that you're better than you really are. Where a, a computer is much less likely to do that. A computer is not going to say because you had one idiot from this college or one genius that that is meaningful. If you get enough, it will begin to realize that, but it won't overreact. Yeah, and uh, also uh, probably humans uh, tend to have a recency bias that uh, if you had like one really uh, crappy interview just recently and then you have a moderate one next, the moderate one compared to the most recent one looks like an amazing person, but in your overall sample it might be, you know, it's just just a moderate interview. Yeah, well, it's amazing to me when you look at some of these companies and how they do their hiring and recruiting, how terrible they are. Um, my first interview, I didn't know if I was going to go and go to graduate school. And so I interviewed at a nano battery technology company, some nano lithium battery company. And I had six interviews that day. And so I interviewed with one manager, went and interviewed with another manager and another manager. And so not only did they waste my entire day, I wasted six, you know, you look at the man hours and the opportunity cost, that was six people. Yeah. And the and there was a ton of redundancy in the questioning. They all asked me very similar questions. And the very first person I talked to, I made a technical mistake in the interview. And they corrected me and they told me what the answer was. And then the very the very next interview, they asked me the same technical question. And of course I got it right. <laughs> and then the third interview, they asked me the same te- technical question. Of course I got it right. Where the problem with that is they have different experiences with me where now when they sync up that evening after I've left, half the room could think I'm an idiot and the other half the room thinks I'm exceptional. Um, so I ended up getting a job offer from them, but which I turned down. I went to grad- graduate school. But just that process is such a mess. And yeah. it's actually more common than you think with respected companies where mm-hmm. one candidate will interview multiple times rather than having a structured interview that's done once. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really cool, and it sounds it sounds awesome. This uh, whole idea of interviewing through machine learning, um, and uh, as I imagine, your company, the company you're working for, HireVue, is pioneering this space, and uh, you in particular, you're creating all these algorithms. When do you think? Uh, and right now, they're available to big uh, companies who um, you know hire thousands and thousands of people. But when do you think this kind of concept is going to become democratized that it's going to be available to anybody to any small firm or to any startup to uh, apply your algorithms or uh, approach you guys to assist them in the process of hiring do you think that will happen anytime soon uh, for higher view specific as a company they really are the enterprise choice in their space so they they kind of cater toward that size of a company but for smaller companies 
there are so many machine learning solutions that are creeping into HR right now, mm-hmm. whether they're doing resume predictive modeling or audio only, or some of these, um, there's a lot of companies that do these predictive assessments where you, you know, you answer 50 or hundred questions and they predict outcomes from that. And they can even accept open-ended responses. So there's, it doesn't matter how big the company is. There are definitely machine learning solutions that can help the current process. Like a resume model is probably the simplest one, mm-hmm. assuming that they have enough volume um, to find those correlations. You, the, the volume definitely helps. I, I think it's the future. I, I would be very surprised if my children who are uh, they're under seven, I'd be very surprised if they're interviewing with humans when they are adults because of the, the benefits that come from what a computer can see. Yeah, fantastic. That's very, very um, solid view of the future. Um, all right, and what about your second startup? You mentioned Ziff, where you're doing some deep learning. Can you tell us more, a bit more about that? There's always a side project going on with me. There always has been, and that's changed depending on the year and what's going on. But with this uh, Ziff, I'm diverting a lot of time into it now. Uh, I've got some great co. I've got a great co-founder who's also. I, I see him as being a, a rock star data scientist um, who has a lot more business experience than I do. His name is David Gonzalez. And so what we're doing is we're trying to lower the barrier to entry mm-hmm. um, as low as possible. And when you look at a lot of these startup, or if we, not startups, but if you look at these bigger offerings, so Google has a predictive uh, cloud option, Microsoft does, Amazon does, IBM does. And one of the issues that we're seeing, these companies are, are fantastic. With They all have their own strengths. So Microsoft is exceptional when it comes to integrations. You know, They can integrate with Excel and all these different databases. And it's a, it's a very nice move if you're a Microsoft shop to kind of bring these solutions in. Um, IBM, they've been doing a lot of good for the data science community with um, Watson and the marketing, mm-hmm. getting the message out. A lot, of, a lot more people are familiar with data science and machine learning because of IBM. And because because of some of these wins that Watson has had, personally, I, I really enjoy Amazon. I feel like they they do a good job with the documentation. And then Google is is a popular favorite, but they I, they do some things well, and they struggle with other things. And I feel like their machine learning offering is something that they have struggled with historically, but I think they're improving with that. And so with Ziff, we're trying to make this much more accessible, where we don't feel if you want to build a predictive model on images, we don't feel like you need to read pages of documentation and you don't need to spend minutes trying to figure out how you'd go about doing this. All you need to do is you need to have a zip or tar file with image folders or something on the cloud and you just point um, our our product to it and we you get a predictive model that's world-class and you can immediately begin calling that in your JavaScript application or your website or your app uh, so we so with our current customers that we have, they're focused on deep learning applications around image uh, recognition, uh, image search, and image ranking. Um, but we also have prospects that we're talking to right now that are more interested in our text offering, uh, where we have some text models. So the ambitions of the company, I think a year from now, we'd like to have one of the largest marketplaces of pre-trained models. Mm-hmm. So I, IBM, Microsoft, um, and Google, they, they have pre-trained models. I think even Amazon has some coming online now where if you want to predict age or gender, 
or whether or not an image is safe for work, those are available to you now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they actually don't have a lot of models. They probably have less than 10 when it comes to image classification, but we want to, um, we really want to blow that up with the marketplace. So that's, so I'm really excited about that. That's what I'm working on now. Um, but I'm still actively involved with HireVue and working with their team and their roadmap. Nice, very nice. And so are you guys looking at, uh, going to be looking for funding or um, you're just going to be doing it all on your own? It's interesting because we, we have talked to VCs. We do have funding opportunities, but it's always kind of a, a dance between you and the VCs on do you want to take the evaluation that they're willing to give you or do you want to hold out for the evaluation that you want? Mm-hmm. Luckily for us right now, we have enough revenue coming in that we don't need funding at the moment, yeah. but... Um, the funding, of course, leads to some great things that would help us, like bringing um, some key players on board sooner. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the plan right now is uh, hopefully uh, soon, uh, during the next couple of weeks, you'll start seeing some press releases on this new company. And depending on the traction that we can get in the next six months, then we'll probably raise around mm-hmm. then. But it, it's interesting because transitioning from a wonderful company like HireVue and working on more of a full-time data science startup, there's definitely some major changes that happen. One of those changes are when I'm working on Ziff stuff, being your own boss can be, it can be challenging. The, the challenge there is a company like HireVue, they're big enough and they're a solid enough company that they can afford a few mistakes and a few pitfalls. Yep. And for people doing machine learning application development, you'll definitely run into a lot of those. You might go down a tangent that ends up being a dead end, where when you're doing a startup and you're burning resources, you really can't afford to work on something that is not critical to work on. And so a lot of times in data science, we like to work on fun projects, exciting projects. You might have 10 projects on your list, and one of them is actually really enjoyable. And at HireVue, we have those options. We have some really fun projects that, like we did one where we predicted coding ability as you wrote the code, we mm. predicted whether or not you'd cat pass the coding assessment. And we showed that we were able to predict that you were going to pass the coding assessment before you had even completed a third of your coding. So we can already tell you're a really good programmer once we see a few lines of code. We don't need you to finish the whole assessment. Nice. And so like projects like that are so much fun. And you know, whether or not they end up in the product isn't really that's not the main point. It's you know the fact that you did it was fun and it's kind of you're exploring, but Managing the startup is a lot more stressful because every day is critical and you can't you can't work on something that's not absolutely tied to revenue in the near future. So it's definitely a learning process, but we'll we'll see where it goes during the next year. Yeah, probably some more gray hairs coming up for your beard. Yeah, but hopefully I'll be the one causing those rather than <laughs> getting f bombed by some you know yeah. Manhattan style. Hedge gotcha. fund manager. Gotcha. And a, a lot of our, um, not, uh, maybe not a lot, but quite a few of our listeners actually have ideas about uh, startups in the space of data science and about creating their own business or product or service in this space in machine learning, data science, artificial intelligence. What would your one biggest piece of advice would uh, be for, for these people? So the biggest piece of advice would be Um, It's a really hot space right now. So for you to go and get funding, a lot of VCs are actively thinking of partitioning funds towards machine learning and AI. Uh, So you kind of have a green light there to get in and do pitches. But the 
the the thing that we were surprised about is the VCs actually know a lot less than you hope they do when it comes to AI. Uh, like one example, during one of our pitches, we were referencing IBM Watson and some of these other offerings. And the VCs that we we're pitching to, they had no idea what IBM Watson actually did, no. which I, I think most of the public is probably that way. But I think there's an assumption if you're a VC and you're investing in these tech companies that you must know in detail what these uh, different offerings do and, and they don't. And so I think for people that are interested in pitching their own startup, it's, it's easier if you find a niche topic. So if you're going to do like patent prediction or lead prediction, if you find a very niche topic and you can build a platform around that, something that's tangible that the VCs can see, that is, uh, that's better. Um, and then the more you can dumb it down, to something because really you, some of the VCs you're pitching to, they've only invested in like SaaS startups. They, you might be their first AI startup. And so you can't expect them to like, you, know, you can't expect them to know what deep learning is or why your solution is useful. Mm-hmm. But I, I would definitely encourage anyone. It doesn't matter if it's your own startup, but I would go work for a startup. So if it's your own, great. But if not, go find a local startup. Uh, you'll learn so much more because you have to wear a lot of different hats. You get a lot of responsibilities. You do a lot of jobs. You you might be on more customer calls than you would be. So that, that was a great thing for me with HireVue. I was able to be on a lot of customer calls and interact on the business side where some data science positions, you may not get that. So I'm a huge fan of encouraging people to go work for a startup rather than going for maximum job security with a bigger company. Mm-hmm. Great, great advice. Thank you so much. Um, and while we're on the topic of Ziff, um, would you mind giving us a quick crash course into deep learning? I noticed you changed your LinkedIn uh, profile description as uh, Ben Taylor deep learning in square brackets. And it's obviously it shows that you've got a huge focus in that area. And deep learning is indeed a, a very growing uh, part of machine learning. Some, some companies just prefer to do deep learning than any other aspect of machine learning because uh, they believe that, you know, that is more... Uh, efficient and just uh, can yield even better results. So if you don't mind, could you give us a quick um, uh, introduction to deep learning uh, the way you see it, please? Yeah, so this is definitely very confusing to people who aren't kind of in our space. And so the way I explain it to executives and managers who are not data scientists, I because they get confused as deep learning, machine learning, is it different, what's going on? And so the thing that I tell them is, Data scientists have a really fancy tool, tool chest in the garage. We, we have drills, we have hammers, we have all these interesting things. They allow us to build some really cool workflows and models that provide a lot of value. Deep learning is a brand new tool that was introduced. It didn't really become used in the market until around 2014 and after that, where a lot of companies don't have this tool, they don't know how to use it, and they don't have access to it. But for the ones that do... This tool is so good, it is able to beat all classical approaches before it. And so uh, those classical examples will fall into a lot of unstructured data examples. So text, image classification, audio classification, video classification, uh, any, any type of sequential sequence, they'll, deep learning will typically do much better than a classical approach, like a Bayesian model, a bag of words, and I can give you some concrete numbers on that. There, a very popular data set within machine learning is this MNIST handwritten digit set. Mm-hmm. So what it is, is it's numbers from 0 to 9. 
It's 28 by 28 pixels. It's a black and white image. You could literally look at these in Excel if you wanted to. It's You could treat it like a table. I've got 28 columns, 28 rows, and where the number is sloppily drawn, there's some numbers that are larger than zero. Yep. And that data set has 60,000 images, and you can build a predictive model that when you see a new image, you will predict what it is. Is this a 2? Is it a 7? And a lot of classical algorithms do this really well. So you could use a Bayesian method, you can use a random forest, you could use gradient boosted regression, uh, logistic regression, support vector machine, you, you name your favorite classical supervised machine learning algorithm. You can build a predictive model and you'll be surprised that it can, you know, they'll get higher than 80% accuracy. And if you're predicting 10 classes, that's pretty good since random would be a 10% accuracy. So they'll do well, but the best you could do, so let's say you are, you are a genius when it comes to these algorithms. You know them really well, and you do all of this optimization. The best you could probably do would be 95, 96% accuracy. You won't be able to go above that. Even, like, I'd be very impressed if you could go above that with classical methods. With the simplest deep learning model, you can get above 98% accuracy. And for people that know deep learning well, you can get up to 99.7% accuracy. Wow. And it's... And the main difference, another key difference with deep learning, is deep learning does something that is very significant. It does its own feature engineering. Where with higher view, when we're building these predictive models, there's a lot of human um, expertise that will go into that. That well, we think this is important in an interview, or we think this is important in a wafer when it comes to predicting yield. And so deep learning takes care of all the feature engineering. The other thing I like to tell people is deep learning does what you do every day. So when you walk downstairs into your kitchen and you open up your utensil drawer and you're going to grab a fork, how on earth did you grab a fork? Like, that's that's pretty complicated. How did you find the fork? How did you differentiate the fork from the spoon? And if you look at what your brain is doing, it is, it's building a, what I call a feature ensemble. You're looking at the little, uh, the ends of the fork, you're looking at the handle. So you have some micro features and macro features, and you kind of have this sloppy soup of features that you've used to decide that that's a fork and you're going to grab it. Uh, deep learning does the same thing. It does a hierarchical feature approach where it can have micro features and macro features, but instead of discovering nine features that you found for the fork, it might discover um, a thousand or something much more significant that a human can't compete with. This is a longer answer, but I, I'm so excited about machine <laughs> about deep deep learning. I feel like the applications are endless. Um, deep learning is going to be a major contributor. And I, that's always, that's a big disappointment for me when I engage with new students and people looking to get hired and they're not familiar with deep learning. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a, definitely a requirement. That, that's, uh, that's really good. And thank you for that. Uh, a very intuitive explanation of deep learning and uh, really backs the thinking that uh, deep learning can substitute any other type of machine learning and probably will in the years to come. Could you comment a little bit on, you know, the, the most uh, well-known types of deep learning, specifically uh, ANN, CNN, RNN? What, what do they mean and what, what are the differences between them? Yeah, even though deep learning is surprisingly simple, when people kind of can understand how a convolutional networks, there are lots of different types of deep uh, networks that are used. So the most basic one that I would use to introduce people to would be a CNN. So it stands for convolutional neural net. Mm -hmm. And convolutions, we use them at the hedge fund for performance, 
But before that, I, I really wasn't that familiar with the convolution. And a lot of data scientists who are just kind of exiting their programs, they're not familiar with it unless they study deep learning. So a nice way to introduce a convolution would be to think of it as a filter. So if I have a one-dimensional stock signal and it's very, very messy, I've got, maybe you're trading Forex, so it's Euro USD. It's going up, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. It's all over the place. A very popular trading thing to do with that signal is to smooth it. And to smooth it, I would do a simple moving average where I'd have a window of 10 numbers or 100 numbers where I'm sliding it along and I'm doing this moving average where it's interesting. The fastest possible way that I could do that moving average is not using matrix math. It's actually a convolution. Hmm. So if I do a convolution, that is the fastest way that I can do that moving average. But it can also do more things than a moving average. You can find like a head and shoulder signal where it's oscillating up and up and I get a shoulder and I get a head. And then the second shoulder is below the head. That can That's a classical signal for a pivot point yep. where you might want to short the stock or sell it. And that's a really complicated signal to have. So if you went to some new students and you said, hey, I need you to write a computer program that will detect a head and shoulder signal for me. But the problem is sometimes the, the head can be skinny, sometimes the shoulders can be large, sometimes there can be spaces, sometimes there can be like a, a second shoulder that's not really a shoulder, there's noise. And so that, that would be a project for them to design a filter or design a, an algorithm that would tell me if there's a head and shoulder signal. But with convolutions, you can actually just solve for the numbers in the convolution and it will detect that. And convolutions on their own, they're a pretty complicated topic to just discuss through audio without some type of visualization. So I would, there's some really good YouTube tutorials. I'd look up convolutional nets. Um, the other way I like to think about a convolutional net is think of it as a river. So you're up in the mountains and you find this nice laminar flow stream. It's very calm. You can talk, you know, it's not making a lot of noise. That is the top of a convolutional net. And so I'll throw an image into that stream and I can explain what's happening to the image. It's not very complicated. But as the image moves down through the convolutional net, it becomes extremely complicated where I have filters that are literally creating new images, and then those images are becoming multidimensional, and then they're reacting on themselves downstream, and then I have different feature sizes where at the bottom of the net, it's like a raging rapid. It's, it's very complex. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot I can do with it. So you mentioned the other ones. You have LSTMs, long short-term memory. So if you have a sequence that you're trying to remember, and a lot of times that can be language. There's some really fun examples where they'll actually have the computer autocomplete, like Shakespeare, or, or you know, maybe autocomplete a meme or something. And then you have other complicated nets uh, for speech. There's ones called these uh, bi-directional recurrent neural nets, where speech is complicated because if I say a phrase, and you need to understand that I said the cat is fat, and I, so I say the cat is fat. But you're not sure if I said the cat is fat or the hat is fat. Yep. You're going to decide that I said the cat is fat because the hat is fat doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the reason that doesn't make sense is because you're actually using a very impressive language model to decide that a hat can't be fat. <laughs> so therefore, I must have said that the cat is fat. And to do that, it's complicated because not only am I using words in the past to make that decision, I'm also using words in the future based on what the sentence, how the sentence completed. I'm using the word fat in the future, and I'm using all of that to make a decision on what that word is that was unclear, it was hard for me to hear, 
where recurrent or bidirectional recurrent neural nets do the same thing. They use information in the past and information in the future to decide what letter was spoken at that moment in time. And those are some of my favorite nets right now are the CTC uh, bidirectional recurrent neural nets uh, that I think Baidu gets a lot of credit for bringing their attention out. A lot of times with recurrent neural nets, you're using them for some type of temporal sequence, some ordering. With convolutional neural nets, you're using them for spatial information on an image, and you can even use them for audio. Uh, so for audio, sometimes we'll do like a spectrogram. So if I want to detect if you said a single word, like a, think of a command. I want to talk to my house, and I want to say lights off or lights on. It's a single command. I could do that with a convolutional net uh, on a spectrogram. So the, the audio clip would become a spe- go through a spectrogram and become an image. Yeah, I apologize if hopefully... No, no, that was great. Yeah, if this is confusing, please take a look at some of the convolutional nets or deep learning introductions. I even have a video where it goes through some examples in code. I, I can shoot you a link. Yes, please. We'll, we'll add it to the show notes. That's awesome. And that example, it's just... Uh, I love your intuitive explanations and uh, really help kind of understand, not, not necessarily in depth how the algorithm works because, of course, they're much more complex than that, but uh, just understand in which direction people should start thinking to, uh, to better uh, grasp these things. And the example about the cat is fat. I, I just recently had a, a um, or sometimes in life we have these situations where somebody's saying something and you're like having conversation and you kind of nod along and, and, and you, and they're like, you kind of pretend you understood something, but it actually takes you I don't know, five or 10 more seconds to actually, for your brain to process what they said because you didn't hear it that well. And then based on what they say further down or even just uh, if you give your brain some time, you're like, oh, that's what they said. And your example reminded me of that. And um, that kind of also, I, I, I wanted to ask you this question. Is it true? Because you've done, you've done chemistry and uh, you're in uh, artificial intelligence machine learning now. Is it true that uh, the electric circuits are uh, one million times faster than biochemical ones so that uh, machines given the same level of an intellect would think a million times faster than a human i i think we'll get to that point um well the other thing that you're dealing with is bandwidth Mm. Uh, so if you think about some of these gpus they're capable of 11 teraflops in a single gpu now and I, there's a really cool graphic that shows when we're going to surpass a human's ability. Uh, so, so this is interesting. So when it just comes to like how many operations per second can you yep. do, yeah. a computer will definitely surpass a human in the short term. So in the next five or ten years, a computer can easily do more. Um, it'll, you know, we'll have more. We'll have neural nets in the next three to four years that will have more neural connections than our own brains, mm. and. So there, there's some tasks that the computers can do exceptionally well. So with image classification, the humans have already lost. So computers, and and I'm kind of, I, I've had some flack for this, where I'm a huge believer in some, you know, well-known, respected disciplines and jobs just going away in the future. So I feel like the radiologist and the pathologist, who in the past have been really respected, you know, my, my kid has a tumor, we go in and we look at a CT scan or an MRI and this wonderful radiologist with so much experience is looking at this and they're making a decision where I'm to the point now that in the near future, I'd actually be upset about that. I would yeah. be angry that why am I, why do I not have 
deep learning that is comprehending a million images to decide what disorder I have. And and there, there, there's a lot of people that die on a regular basis because the physicians are unable to diagnose these really rare disorders yep. because they personally have not seen it, but a collection of physicians have seen it. And so machine learning will be great at that. Yep. Um, and, and also reminds me of... Um, uh, they have they just released uh, an app recently which you can uh, download on your or or they working on an app no I think they released it where where you can download on your iPhone or Android and just take a picture of your skin where you think this might this looks weird and it'll tell you if it's a if it's a cancer cell or not if it's a cancer spot on your skin or not and it uh, predicted they they actually tested it against I think eighteen other. Um, uh, doctors which look at your skin, uh, dermatologists, and it did as well as they did. So you can already get that on your iPhones and Android devices. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's great. It's, yeah. it, so there's some things that computers can do really well. The thing that computers still struggle with are some of the long-term strategy planning. Mm -hmm. um, so the examples I give, the, the ones I'm really excited about right now, we're going to do a demo this year with some computer games for Ziff. So they have deep nets can play games like Doom, these first-person shooter games, where they're they're walking around, and the deep net is in, they're controlling in real time what the player in the game should be doing as far as navigation and shooting, things like that. And the deep net can do it better than a human. Mm -hmm. And the other the other example we're seeing are with some of these drones flying, a drone flying through a mountain trail. They've already shown that these deep nets can predict where to go, and the they're able to do it because they're trading on a short-term reward. Mm -hmm. So if I'm playing a game and I kill someone, like if I shoot someone in the game, I get some short-term reward. Or if I'm flying a drone and I crash or I don't crash, the short-term reward is very clear. But if I'm playing a strategy game where I don't get a reward until the end of the game, or I'm going through like some fantasy level or something, or StarCraft is the one that yep. Google's uh, DeepMind's focusing on right now, those are those are very hard. They're very challenging. And so the idea of drones flying around for the military and doing short-term actions, whether they're surveilling a region or they're taking out someone carrying an AK-47 who's not allowed to be carrying an AK-47, those types of actions are very simple. Computers will do those exceptionally well at faster frame rates than humans ever could. But when it comes to making long-term strategy planning decisions, that's, that's still quite hard for computers. But, but we'll get there eventually, right? Yeah, we'll get there. We'll we'll get to Skynet soon enough. <laughs> and and that's that's my next question. Like uh, you you're very knowledgeable on the topic of deep learning and art, artificial intelligence in general. And there's this um, futurist in the U.S. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Ray Kurzweil, and he's got all these predictions about when and how and where we will get to with machine learning and artificial intelligence. And he's predicting that somewhere you know by 2030 we're gonna have Amazing things like we're going to have uh, robot, nano robots in our bloodstream, uh, looking after us, making sure we're not sick. We're going to have self uh, driverless cars or self driving cars, and everything's going to be connected. We're going to the cars are going to redirect us to a hospital at the first uh, sign of a possible heart attack, and so on. But also, he predicts that somewhere around 2050 uh, and onwards, AI is going to be so dominant and so um, strong that it's going to start making decisions for itself is going to start thinking of where the world should be going and it's going to start disregarding us or even uh, eliminating us. What, what do you think of this whole AI revolution 
topic. What are, what are your views on this subject? Yeah, so I'm, I, I think the people that know me well, they tease me that I'm already an insider with the, the robot empire, just because <laughs> I'm such a, I'm such an advocate for accelerating. I, I don't think humans should be taking the gas off. I think they should be dumping the gasoline on the fire and make this reality happen sooner. Uh, this is getting up to 2040, mm-hmm. that, to that type of ideal scenario. And and the reason is just all of the, like, the, the interesting thing about this is this will happen whether people want it or not. And the reason is because of the good that people will see, the good and the security that they'll see up front. So uh, examples will be driverless cars. You know, people die, so many people die because of people driving. And, you know, you have drunk drivers, you have people that fall asleep, people texting on their phones, like they're, you know, in our own cities and counties, we have fatalities on a regular basis from human mistakes from driving. So self-driving cars, that seems like a clear win. In medicine, there's so many applications to save lives beyond what medical researchers have been capable of in the past. Um, the, the one that I like in the U.S., there's been a a lot of heated debate between this Black Lives Matter movement, so Black Lives Matter versus White Lives Matter, where being kind of on the machine learning side, I see the way I see it is people are missing the point. And the point is that humans will always be bad when it comes to making split second decisions that affect their lives. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're a police officer and you're called at two in the morning to go, you know, if someone says, you know, there's a kid in this park that has a gun. And based on getting back to that limited experience, based on your limited experience, you had a very negative in, um, you had a very negative experience with this particular minority Mm-hmm. and you go to the park at night and you're on edge, you could be shot like your partner was two years ago, mm-hmm. and this kid has an airsoft gun or mm-hmm. they have a toy. They don't even have a gun. Mm-hmm. They're just walking around in a hoodie and you shoot them. And these things happen, they've happened way too many times. And so you have this Black Lives Matter movement and you have the White Lives Matter counter movement or All Lives Matter counter, counter movement. And it's really just what I think is people need to realize that humans will humans will struggle with this. There's not enough training. There's no amount of training that will fix this. But the thing that will fix this is imagine this scenario. You show up, you get the call at night, the police officer shows up, he doesn't even get out of his car and a small drone detaches off of his car, flies over this individual and does a threat assessment. And the technology exists now using deep learning. It could do a threat assessment better than they could have in the middle of the day if they were not stressed and they took a few minutes. Yep. So the drone will do a better threat assessment. The police officer doesn't care. They're eating dinner in their car. The drone comes back and tells them that it's just you know, like there, there's no threat, and then they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so the police will appreciate it. Uh, for the minorities that have been negatively impacted, they will appreciate it. So this, so the idea of AI um, kind of ruling this for security for the police, I see that as being a huge. Um, a huge benefit, but I think that begins to scare people because if the drones, did, if there's a mass shooter, like, you know, in your country, in my country, we've had mass shooters. Mm-hmm. If there's a, a rogue human there, like I can promise you in the future, we will have humans that decide they want to kill a lot of people. And we can't, mm-hmm. we can't prevent that from happening. You'll, it kind of, it's kind of that outlier thing. Like most of the humans in the world are great. You know, we, we love them. They're fantastic, but you're going to have an outlier and how much damage can that outlier do? But with machine learning, if you have a drone that determines that someone is shooting someone on a campus, you probably want that drone to do something about it. You probably want them to incapacitate the person, 
And so then, you know, you're going to start to cross all of these ethical lines of what do we feel comfortable with? You know, you could easily have a drone. As soon as someone fires a shot, within two minutes, they're incapacitated, mm-hmm. whether they're it's lethal or non-lethal, and do we feel okay with that? And yeah, so it's I, I think it's fascinating. I'm just kind of a wait and see. Let's see what comes <laughs> in the future. But I'm I'm a big advocate on saving lives and improving. Um, but I, I think you will see riots in the future against AI um, around job loss. You know, yeah. in the U.S., we have we'll have over three million uh, professional drivers that are out of out of work and unqualified for other jobs mm-hmm. because of AI, and you'll have uh, lots of other industries that suffer as well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting how Uber introduced all these cars and now has all these drivers, and within a few years they're going to replace them with. Um, of driverless cars, so they created industry, created a lot of jobs, and uh, now it's it's all going to get replaced. Um, the, the thing, I, like, like I agree that uh, there will be a lot of benefits coming from uh, AI and artificial intelligence. But um, I was watching a TED talk recently. It was by Sam Harris. Can we build AI without losing control over it? Have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one, but it sounds fascinating. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. And the way he describes it is, um, so we're creating AI, we want to improve our lives and so on, but as as an inevitable byproduct, we're going to create this um, super intelligence that's going to be smarter than us, going to think uh, way more, uh, way quicker than us and so on. And uh, we don't know what it's going to want to do with us on this planet and how it's going to react to humans being here. And it's going to come here around 50 years from now. And what a re- interesting comparison he says is that a lot of people understand this. A lot of people appreciate the concept, and we're just kind of like waiting to see what happens when when this AI does come. And he says, "What if we got a signal from an extraterrestrial species that they're going to, which we just said simply, humans get prepared. We're coming in fifty years' time. Obviously, we'd start doing some preparations. We, you know, build defenses or come up with some certain strategies how to deal with aliens and so on." Here we are creating this alien ourselves. It's coming. We know that, you know, based on Moore's law and other uh, predictive uh, mechanisms, we can, we know that it's coming in about fifty years from now. But nobody is doing anything about it. Does does that concern you at all? Um, no, not really. Because even for the most advanced AI that we have now, there's any even for the future AI. So the AI fifty years from now, there's a, always a concept of uh, a, an objective or a goal. There's a, there's always a mission. Uh, and the mission is defined by the humans. And so the the joke on the AI side is the mission will be uh, human safety and prosperity. Like that's, that is the goal of AI and that is hard coded into the kernel. And so with a lot of these AI movies, they talk about scope creep where the kernel has be re- re- been rewritten and it's able to jump out of that objective. And so Really, the computer is a slave to whatever the human wants as long as the objective is well-defined. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm probably embarrassed to admit this, but I, I'll admit it anyway. But one of my favorite quotes or taglines that I've had in the past was, the proudest moment of my career will be when the AI kills me because of an objective that I've overlooked. And so <laughs> the, the joke there is, you know, I, I love AI. I want to design it, but it, I think an iRobot, there's the robots eventually kill the scientist. Yeah. And when they kill the scientist, what they've done is they have, the scientist is the AI expert and he's just find the objective and the rules, but the AI has figured out a way to satisfy his objective. 
and you know, the, really the AI is thinking of something that you didn't think of. And so yeah. to kind of extend that joke, it would be if I tell the AI that all I want is for my wife to be happy, <laughs> and then the AI realizes that in order for that to happen, it must kill me, it has outsmarted me. <laughs> but it's you know some, something that I never saw coming because I, I felt like that that was not a possibility. And and th- we, we already see this with computer games where the AI will begin to cheat. Yeah. So if you have AI playing a computer game, if there's a way for the AI to cheat, and they, they're seeing this with Mario and a few different things, where the AI is able to like jump on the corners of boxes and things that a human would never do. Yeah. Um, but the AI has figured out that it can do it and it gets an advantage. And so just like that, the AI has this insatiable appetite to satisfy its... like that's It has such an insane appetite to satisfy this objective. It's really the fault of AI. So AI will cheat if it means it can satisfy this objective better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it, it doesn't really care about the rules unless you tell it it can't cheat. Yeah, yeah, you have to define all the rules. So, like, if drones need to get a faster response time to a gunshot victim, and the drone realizes it can fly through a window and break the window, yeah. it'll do that. But you might say, wait, hold on, I, I didn't want you to break through all the windows on campus to go get this per Like, I do, but I don't. Like, you, you really have to define the rules well, or yeah. it'll surprise you. Yeah, okay, all right, gotcha. Um, well, wow, that, that was a... Crazy discussion. Really enjoyed that. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. This brings us uh, to the end. I'd love to continue going, but uh, maybe we can have you on some other time when your your startup is full throttle and uh, you can share some more insights. Um, what? Uh, how can our listeners follow you and contact you and get to know you uh, better if they would like to know more about your career? Yeah. So uh, LinkedIn is probably the best. So Ben Taylor Data. They can find me on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter. I'm, I'm not very good at Twitter. So if they do send me a message on Twitter, maybe in a few months, I'll get around <laughs> to responding. Um, the Yeah, so they reach out to me on LinkedIn. I do get a lot of requests for mentoring and for job help or getting a job. And so sometimes it's hard to respond to all yeah. of those. So it's, it's a lot more, it's more useful. I'm more likely to respond if I know that they're not asking a question that's already mentioned. Yep. Um, so... It, for my blog posts, if 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 you read my blog post and there's something that's not addressed, please let me know, um, whoever you are, and send me a message, and I'll try to respond to you. And if there's something that's not addressed in my blog post, I'll be happy to write it up or or discuss it with them. But if they're asking me how do I get a job as a data scientist, and that's something that is heavily discussed in all of my blog posts, then I'm less likely to respond. But I yeah but yeah I, I try to I try to respond to people when I can yeah. So. And uh, a quick heads up for our listeners, uh, Ben won't admit it, but most likely it is an AI responding to you anyway, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so don't keep your hopes up. Um, uh, but uh, seriously, uh, in terms of articles, I highly recommend the Data Scientist Type E article by Ben. You can find it on LinkedIn or just search Google Data Scientist Type E, and we'll also include in the show notes. It's, it's a fantastic article, completely changed my career, my perspective on data science and my life. So thank you so much, Ben, for that. Like, uh, I, I became a huge fan right away after reading that article. Um, another good one is uh, Why Working Hard Won't... What's the correct uh, name there? Why Working Hard Won't... Why Working Hard Won't Make You a Data Scientist. Yeah, great I article that's there the name as well. Yeah, I, I really liked how you described a good a good uh, tip for people, a silver bullet for people to 
uh, become great data scientists is like get your favorite Python libraries or R libraries and dig into them, find all the code and make corrections and submit those corrections. Um, one of my friends actually uh, did the same for Linux. He found a bug in Linux. He submitted the correction. They accepted it. He put on his resume. He got a job with Microsoft. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that stuff can be huge. I did have some pushback from a researcher in Switzerland that was pretty frustrated that I <laughs> encourage people to do that. And the reason he was frustrated is because, yeah, if you're digging into like code for an FFT or support vector machine, like the real guts of it, you're yeah. not going to get any value out of that. And you're not going to, you're definitely not going to do anything to improve it. But I'm thinking more of like the high level stuff, like pipelines and, you know, pandas, like Dumb panda line. get dummies, like, yeah, dig into that stuff and understand it at a high level. But I don't expect you to like be digging through an FFT like details. That's yeah. So uh, there, there's definitely value there, but don't get bogged down on anything that you think is too complicated. Just, just a high level yeah. will definitely offer a lot of value, but yeah, thank you so much for, for thinking of me and inviting me on the podcast. I, hopefully it's, hopefully it's useful. Yeah, definitely useful. A great pleasure to have you. And one final question, what is the one, uh, what well, your one favorite book, which you can recommend to our listeners to help them become better at data science? So this this will be an unusual book uh, recommendation, I think, because it's it's not a data science book. But one of my favorite books is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love it, I think a lot of data scientists can benefit from it, is it is so important for us to fail quickly. And a lot of us struggle with that. And so a lot of data scientists, they'll get a problem. They'll immediately start spinning up something that is much more complicated than they should, where really the, the thing you need to decide is what can I what's the fastest way for me to fail at this particular problem? And the reason that's a benefit is because it's also the fastest way for you to decide if it's worth your time. So if you're spending a week or two to decide if this sophisticated approach is important, then I, I see that as being a waste of your time. But if you can decide in an hour that this is useful, then by all means do that. So I'm the, the, the other thing I'll tell people is even though you have much more sophisticated tools and methods out there, you can get 80% of your value with a Bayesian method or a logistic regression. So please do that. You know, you can do that very, very quickly. And if you're dealing with a custom data set that's very messy, it requires a lot of custom munging, just run it through pandas get dummies, uh, which is a you know a very quick auto tokenizer munger uh, to just see if there's value there. Because if you can see if there's any value, that can motivate you to do something more complicated. But de definitely don't start with deep learning LSTMs. So I, I'm a huge fan of Eric Reese's idea that you fake an MVP or, or just do everything you can to fail quickly or get customer feedback. Because this has happened at HireVue. We've built some very complex things using Siamese nets, mm -hmm. like top-notch technology. And then it turns out that the customer, like it was more of a curiosity for the customer, but there weren't real dollars tied to it. Mm. And so that thing kind of died on the vine where uh, thinking of what the customer wants can be different than what the data scientist wants. And so the, the better your users can think of what the customer wants, the better off they'll be, whether it's their own job or their own startup. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Thank you so much. The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Uh, sounds like a great book for data scientists to save some time and really understand what the, what the best approach is very quickly. Um, so thank you again so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm sure so many people will pick up so much value from here and um, hopefully they will learn even more from your articles and the future ones that you guys write as well. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So there we go. That was Ben Taylor, Chief Data Scientist at HireVue. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. As you can tell, Ben has so much knowledge and value that he can share, and this podcast could go on for hours and hours and hours. But hopefully we were able to convey some of those very powerful insights that will help you understand a bit more about deep learning and what it actually is and how it can fit into your career and into your maybe startup or into your uh, organization to your role that you're performing right now. And also Ben shared some great tips all around, including on how to build up your career. And my favorite part was when Ben described and drew those numbers on how deep learning is so superior to other machine learning algorithms. For instance, when you take the MNIST data set with the hand-drawn digits with a normal machine learning algorithm, any one of your choice, you can probably get an accuracy up to 95% or if you're very good and you try really hard, up to 98%. But with a simple deep learning algorithm, you can get an accuracy of 99.7%. And that's that's just crazy. I think that's, that's a really uh, good example of how deep learning is superior and just something for you guys to think about. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Please uh, have a look at Ben's articles. I highly recommend them on LinkedIn. They can really change your perception of your own career and uh, how further you can develop your skills in the space of data science. You can also get the show notes for today's episode at www.superdatascience.com slash 29. There you'll get the transcript, all of the resources and links mentioned in uh, today's session and also a URL to follow Ben on LinkedIn or Twitter. And finally, if you enjoyed today's conversation and you'd like more episodes like this, then you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. It's a Super Data Science podcast and that way you'll get to the freshest and newest episodes as they're released. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, happy analyzing.